So hello and welcome to Horse Race Politics. My name is Dr. Matthew Wall. I'm a political scientist at Swansea University and I'm joined by my colleagues. Hi, my name is Dr. Elena Kilby and I'm a lecturer in journalism in the Department of Media and Communication at Swansea University. And I'm Dr. Richard Thomas, a senior lecturer in the same department. So we're all academics specialised in the study of campaigns and political communication. And we've created this podcast to share our analysis of the 2020 US presidential election campaign in real time as it unfolds, using information from political gambling market to keep score. So the podcast will drop each Friday running into the vote. It'll bring you up to speed with the state of the race and help you to filter out the noise of the campaign, focusing on the stories, trends and moments that really matter. So uh, in this last full week of the campaign, we review the stories and developments within and beyond the mainstream media, and we take a look at what the betting markets are making of all of it. We then take a wider look at how this campaign, and indeed the last four years that have led up to it, have affected the American political landscape. And we ask whether there's any end in sight to the vicious polarization that now characterizes American politics. So, okay, so yeah, I think it's probably a good week to start with kind of a sum up of what's been happening. I know, Richard, you've been taking a look at the events of the campaign this week. Yeah, I have, Matt. I mean, hot, right, absolutely hot off the press is the hack, the big story that's just broken, where the Wisconsin Republican Party claim that hackers have stolen over $2 million from the the fund supporting Donald Trump's re-election. So mm. apparently the FBI have been called into that one. So that sounds like a story that's going to run and run. One of the sort of eye-catching things that happened this week was the fact that over 70 million US voters have already been in and done the business. There was a a Twitter thread doing the rounds, and I know you saw this, Matt, because I Mm -hmm. saw that you reacted to it, where it came up with a statistic that 87% of the total number of Texans who voted in the 2016 election have already voted. So this point that we've been making on an ongoing basis that there are fewer and fewer people, you know, left to vote, it, it's really it's really happening, isn't it? In terms of the mainstream coverage of the of the campaign, I think what was really noticeable to me this week is very little news about Biden. Mm-hmm. It's all it's almost like this is a one horse race, you know? The one bit of news that he has been involved in was this sort of whole idea about his policy towards the oil industry. And obviously, you know, the Republicans are trying to make something of that in as much as they're saying that Biden is going to sort of close down the oil industry. Then we've had Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump threatening to sue the Lincoln Project, who mm-hmm. have come back very strongly to uh, just to sort of resist such uh, efforts. We've had CBS releasing the footage of the president walking out of the interview. Yeah, 60 minutes, right? We've had Donald Trump also apparently livid at the fact that Fox News covered the President Obama speech that was attacking him. Obviously, he sees Fox as a a kind of ally, doesn't he? And and he kind of has accused those of being sort of turncoats on that. There was a very interesting article that I read in The Guardian, which was suggesting that if Trump does lose, then one of the possible places that he might end up is actually in jail and bankrupt, which is interesting. There is a story also about this possibility that the firewall protecting the editorial independence of some radio stations uh, is going to be broken, which is sort of leaving them open to government interference. That's a bit of a story that's doing the rounds. And a bit later yesterday, 
We had Trump complaining that the news was being dominated by COVID. Mm. I, I, I can't see what else is going to dominate it, can you? We also had the news that one of his aides um, is preparing apparently some immigration policies that are so hardline that they didn't want to announce them during the campaign because they were going to be too unpopular. We've also had a UFC champion coming out and speaking on behalf of the president. We've had India trying to sort of shake off the suggestion that they were supporting the campaign or either side of the campaign. We've also had an interesting story coming out of Fox, which is that they have a number of COVID cases amongst the kind of key staff that would be normally covering wow. the election. So there seems to be some doubt whether they're going to be, everybody's going to be available. And I suppose we could be faced with the the slightly bizarre um, prospect of of the election night like coverage being being broadcast from Sean Hannity's man cave or someone like that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think there's just a couple of other little things I was going to mention. There's there's some new research out, uh, and this might interest you particularly, Matt, from the Socionomics Institute that are suggesting that they've looked back to the times of Washington, George Washington, and they've looked at the state of the stock market in the three years running up to the election. And they say where there's a, a net game of over 20% during that period, the the president has an 87.5% chance of being re-elected, and that is the case with Donald Trump. So they're, they're calling it for Trump, whereas the slightly right-leaning news website, The Hill, are saying all of the polls are flawed, the tone of the questions is wrong, the pool of likely voters is wrong, the current news cycle is very dependent um, or a very influential on the polls, and they are calling a big win for Trump. Wow. So that's that's the roundup for the for the week's news, Matt. Yeah, which is it's funny because norm in a normal campaign, this would be a kind of a crazy week, but actually it feels to me like a really kind of a slightly becalmed yeah, uh, campaign. I think, I think you're right. Uh, I mean I think just to echo what I started off by saying, I mean, unless we knew that Joe Biden was in this race, it's not obvious from it's not obvious from the news coverage. To be honest, I mean, mm-hmm. it's back to that that sort of hardy annual that we come back to every week, where he's running a very quiet, disciplined, low key kind of background campaign, which is maybe all he has to do. Who knows? What's What's been interesting as well? You mentioned, um, you know, Fox News's disloyalty in broadcasting the uh, the Obama speech uh, in Philadelphia. That was, I mm-hmm. believe, is is Obama's now being kind of wheeled out as the campaign <laughs> big gun. You know, for yeah. you know, obviously in Philadelphia. But if for this kind of closing weekend, he's going to be joining Joe Biden on the on the campaign trail, bringing a little bit more, let's face it, star power uh, to to the Biden campaign. I heard someone say that um, this week that Joe Biden had a had had a charisma bypass. I mean, it's it's difficult not to disagree with that sometimes, isn't it? Well, it reminds me of you know with Hillary Clinton's campaign, or or with actually Barack Obama's first campaign when Bill Clinton came into it and. The, the Democrats do have a sort of a stronger kind of roster of of, of surrogates, really, to to, to bolster uh, someone like Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, than the, than the Trump campaign, which is increasingly a, a one man show. Although uh, with uh, Nigel Farage as the as the opening act now, so uh, Britain has made its own contribution. The, the warm up man. Yeah. The warm up man. But yeah, it, it is it is funny, and uh, more or less that is my sense that uh, broadly speaking. It's been a kind of quiet week with not not much happening. I think the that last debate uh, we kind of talked about at the time might have been the last major campaign event, and 
you know, who knows what the weekend holds, but it does seem to be that that is largely the case, kind of rounding into the rounding into November, really. Elena, you've been kind of keeping an eye on alternative uh, media coverage of, of, of the news mm-hmm. this week. Uh, anything kind of jumping out there? Um, well, first off, I just want to say I was really expecting every week to come to this podcast with some really exciting, you know, um, really flamboyant TV satire stories. And it just hasn't been there during this election compared to the previous ones. I mean, going through some of, you know, some of the, the topics that are being covered every week. I mean, The Daily Show was this kind of beacon of truth and alternative news way back when Jon Stewart was presenting it. And I think now, I mean, it's very Michael McIntyre-esque. You've got Travel Network talking about a ray of sunshine news that comes out. So all these kind of lighthearted stories, which is great, but it's not what the show is about. But I think another thing to add, really, and I think this is the issue that I've had every week when we, we come around to doing the podcast, is in previous years, these big late night comedy programs were uploading content for international audiences almost immediately. Mm. And what was great about that was the shareability of those videos and it helped those videos go viral. Um, at the moment, you've got some of the big shows like Sam B and The Daily Show. I mean, they're not uploading videos sometimes for six days. And then with The Daily Show, I mean, their episode that looked at the debate last week didn't actually come onto UK TV until Monday, which, you know, it's, it's yeah. out of date by them. But just to give you a flavor of what other things have been happening this week, it, it's very much all about coronavirus. And, you know, comparing that to the left wing news media, it, it tends to be a lot of mirroring there in terms of what they're covering each week. So the issue being the rise of COVID-19 cases and essentially how the Trump administration have relinquished all responsibility of dealing with it. Or, in the words of White House Chief of Staff, Matt Meadows, the plan is not to control the virus anymore. So it looks like the theme of these articles or these programs is this possibly the herd immunity approach, but maybe that Trump knows something that we don't. So he keeps saying that COVID is going away and it's just the media who are making a fuss about giving it you know, blanket news coverage every day. Mm. It's really striking. We, I remember our first podcast, we noted the, the figure of the death toll had just gone above 200,000 and it's, it's ticked over 230,000 um, recently. It's hard to get away from that in the media when you've got mm. a thousand people dying a day. Yeah. And, and just one other thing to note in there is that the latest kind of spate of major flare ups have been actually in a lot of the swing states, the states mm-hmm. that Trump needs to needs to needs to win. And so it, that, yeah, that has been unfortunate for for Donald Trump. Sorry to interrupt you, Elena. No, no. And I, I think that's a fair point because, I mean, a lot of the documentaries that have been talking about Trump's um, handling of COVID, I think one was on Channel 4 back last week, was, you know, he was very much with the blue states letting them get on with it. So, you know, they would be to blame if anything went wrong. But if these things are happening in the swing states now, this is something that's going to go against him when it comes to voting, I guess. But just to hint on another subject that was brought up, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett was a subject as well mm-hmm. and how that you know this ideological slant of the justice panel is it could possibly take place when she's when she's in but also how that's actually happening already i think there was a vote this week five to three against allowing the extension in wisconsin for mail-in ballots which essentially means that many postal votes could go uncounted so that was the, the main drawing but what was quite interesting was the the work of john oliver this week so on last week tonight so 
What's interesting with what he does, he tends to go against the grain of what all the other late night satire hosts are doing. So his news value is quite different to the mainstream media and to other late night hosts. And what he chose to cover this week was the subject of immigration. Now, I know Richard hinted on this in his in his part, looking at the news, but we have to remember that with immigration, this was such a huge story in 2000 and in the 2016 election and mm. during the first half of Trump's presidency. But nobody seems to be talking about the wall anymore or family yeah. separation policy. So what was interesting, what Oliver, Oliver did was use that 20 minute segment to examine the process of asylum and how it should work against these government actions that are, are going into place. Perhaps what Richard mentioned earlier, these migrant protocols, the safe third party agreement and Title 32, which are all impeding the process of people seeking asylum and, in his words, shattered an already broken immigration system. Yeah, well, I I, I think it's funny for me, like no matter how harsh the uh, the policy is, Donald Trump would much, much, much rather be talking about immigration than about COVID-19. Yeah. You know, again, I recall, Richard, you you had a poll, uh, some polling data at the start of this where, you know, protecting the border was one of Donald Trump's, you know, key Mm. areas where he had a substantial lead. And it it is amazing the extent to which immigration has sort of fallen off the agenda. Not unlike what's happened here in the UK after the Brexit vote, actually. Someone said to me, I thought it was very funny, that he reckons uh, Donald Trump is actually just jealous of COVID-19 because it's getting more... (laughs) Getting more attention than he is, <laughs> yeah. You know, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also with the Amy Con- with Amy Coney Barrett and and you, you mentioned the Supreme Court judgment, they haven't all been in the same direction. And actually, yeah. in in Pennsylvania, the the ruling was in the opposite direction. Pennsylvania, I think, is a much more important state for for Biden yeah. for for that to be for that to be extended. Just looking at the markets, kind of. Picking up on this idea of a become campaign, the markets have been pretty stable all week. Um, you know, so that 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 kind of jump out sixty five thirty five that we we first noted with uh, Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis has been incredibly stable, uh, really mm-hmm. ever since. It's only varied two or three percent around that around that baseline. What's interesting as well is whether or not I mean, Richard mentioned the kind of stock market the based projections, any projection based on polling really is putting Donald Trump at about a 10% chance of winning or less, you know, so The Economist okay. has a really good uh, projection uh, tool, um, Nate Silver at 538. They're in that kind of ballpark. And really, it does come down to whether the, the journalists at The Hill are right, whether fundamentally the polls are just systematically biased. And they'd have to be systematically biased by about 5% for this to be a close-run thing, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. How could that happen? I mean, you you, you basically have uh, two mechanisms. One is that the Trump supporters are sort of shy, right? Either they're just not participating or they're not saying that they're going to vote for Donald Trump because of a fear that that's going to be some kind of a social sanction against them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or that they're actually systematically trying to deceive or like troll the pollsters, right? Mm. That they're deliberately saying, well, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden as a sort of a prank against the pollsters, yeah. as, as a way yeah. to make them look stupid. Yeah, I mean, there's no obligation for anybody to tell the truth here, is there? No, yeah. absolutely, absolutely not. And it, I guess it's the, the the combined size of those two factors uh, has to be about five, about five or six percent for this to really be closer on thing. On the other hand, though, my reading on it, uh, so I've, I've 
put my bet on Biden a couple of weeks ago, to be honest, is that actually like if I'm a polling company and I'm doing this research and adjusting these data, I have an awful lot more to lose from underestimating Donald Trump than for underestimating Joe Biden, right? And so my my read on it is, and actually all the higher quality, more scientific polls give give Biden a more significant lead. Um, so I think the polls might be underestimating Biden, actually. Mm, interesting. Uh, and I think that's at least as likely as uh, that they're under, underestimating Trump. But as Richard, as you said, Richard, ultimately that we have no way as as political scientists, uh, as pollsters, of 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 forcing people to tell the truth. No. Um, and so. Ultimately, it's that shy effect or that deliberate misleading. If if that's of a big scale, that's that's where the problem is. If you were a Trump supporter and you, you know, you gave false information and you said you declared as a Biden, well, it, it would have the effect of maybe mobilizing the Trump support to make sure more people voted that he he was in trouble, he needed help, mm. and it, and it's a way of rallying the troops in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. Indeed. I mean, I've, I have a friend in uh, Pennsylvania and he's convinced that the polls are wrong. He says like all the activity that he's seeing is Trump people and the yeah. Democrats are a lot yeah. less um, motivated or kind of mm. interested. Mm. But I think I think the Democrats are much more motivated by voting against Trump than they are voting for Biden. Mm. But that that kind of motivation doesn't tend to have as joyous an expression, right, uh, <laughs> in, in, in public behavior. <laughs> So we'll wait and see. I mean, we'll we'll wait and see. I've put my bet. To, I think Biden is a tremendous value bet, to be honest myself. But I've been wrong before. And my colleagues have often been quick to remind me just how wrong <laughs> I've been. But but that is the main mechanism. Like the, all of the polls from all of these uh, polling companies would have to be sort of systematically distorted. Yeah. And as you say, Richard, if the the Hill is reading it that way, uh, Nate Silver at five thirty eight is reading it the other way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm probably even more bullish because I just see well if the pollsters get this wrong. Like the whole polling industry is going it's to gone. take a battering. Yeah. yeah. Who's yeah. gonna who's gonna commission a poll? Yeah. Um, so I, I see them as in terms of like the kind of mechanics of polling, the the sample selection and the weighting, I'd I'd imagine that they're actually quite a lot more cautious about underestimating Donald Trump than than going the other way. So mm-hmm. we'll see on the night. I mean, it's 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 coming up. I did want to kind of talk a little bit about, yeah, kind of about the bigger, the bigger picture. Um, the kind of Trump effect or the Trumpification of mm. politics, how, how how you both see that playing out, you know, as we kind of look ahead now uh, in, into the medium term, like how how has a Donald Trump changed? I suppose, Richard, maybe I'll start with yourself, like the kind of, yeah, well, the, the way that media cover politics. Well, whatever your opinion of him, it, Donald Trump has left his mark, hasn't he? His phenomenon is fleeting in as much as one day he won't be the president, whether that's next week or sometime in the future. But I think what he's left behind is not so fleeting. In the book that I wrote with Stephen Cush in 2018, our last chapter was was called The Trumpification of Election News. Uh, and we feel that he's had a number of effects. The first is that this real commercialization of news values Um the fact that he became a candidate at all in 2016, you might argue, was entirely down to the media. Mm. He was a wealthy one, albeit, but he was a reality TV star, wasn't he? He's the American dream in action. So he'd been given this platform on The Apprentice. He showed his expertise, his power, charisma. People could see he was a no-nonsense, successful businessman. So presumably they thought he'd be a no-nonsense, successful 
president. So you could say thereafter that perhaps the media have viewed him entirely through an entertainment prism rather than mm. a political prism. Um, we know that US broadcasting is deregulated, so then no one's obliged to kind of introduce any element of balance. So if he's doing outrageous things and saying outrageous things, the coverage follows him. As the chief exec of the CBS said, Trump might be bad for America, but it's great for us. Mm. So these news values have been increasingly commercialized to the extent that last time around, Trump garnered 2.4 times more network coverage than Hillary Clinton. No incumbency bonus there, by the way. If anything, Clinton would have got that because she was a Democrat following a Democrat. Um, Mm -hmm. So US scholar Thomas Patterson puts it very nicely. He says, the politics of outrage is Trump's edge and the press have become his dependable, if unwitting, ally. He's also shown Donald Trump, I think, that it's possible to manipulate the media. He's kind of played them, I think. He's driven the media to extremes, so you're either with him or you're against him. There's Mm -hmm. nowhere in the middle. And I think he also manipulated the media. In 2016 particularly, he was the only candidate allowed to phone in interviews into the Sunday morning talk shows. It's the traditional place where candidates get held to account. In the 14-month period, January 2015 to March 2016, all of the candidates at that stage, there were five. Trump had the most interviews. He was interviewed on the phone 30 times. No other candidate was allowed to do that. Mm. So the argument is proper scrutiny involves looking at body language, seeing how you react to questions you're not expecting. The argument would be when you're on the phone, maybe you've got someone briefing you, mm-hmm. you've got notes. notes yeah. As a as a as a commentator said, you know, there's a there's a point that these shows are called things like face the nation and meet the press. It's not call the nation or phone the press. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get what you you get what you build. I mean, so now he he played the media in 2016. He's used to setting the rules of the game. I think also he's 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 really used this whole idea of the dead cat strategy for the media really yeah. strongly. The dead cat strategy, for those who don't know that, is a distraction tactic in as much as you're having dinner with your friends, somebody puts a dead cat on the table, you stop talking about what you're talking about, and you just talk about the dead cat. So you've got the crooked election, you've got Hunter Biden's emails, now perhaps today we've got the hack, people are stealing my campaign money. All of these things, when we're talking about those, and the media is following those, they're not talking about... COVID, mm-hmm. race relations. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously now post-truth is a thing as well. You know, the, the term alternative facts has, has gone into kind of, has gone into sort of folklore, hasn't he? Yeah. Kellyanne Conway, was that Kellyanne Conway? Kellyanne yeah, Conway. Um, we, 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 there's a really good website called uh, PolitiFact that do a sort of fact-checking thing. And I suppose you could argue that one good thing that's come out of this, it's, it's really urged forward the fact-checking sector, hasn't it? In in 2016, they looked at his public utterances, Donald Trump, and they rated that only 21% of what he was saying had any element of truth. 18% was rated pants on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the 2020, they looked at 884 statements, 16% pants on fire. But it's not just a Trump thing. If you remember last week after the debate, Biden was described as imperfect. Um, he rates better on the pants on fire 
measure, that's only 3%. So truth truth is an elusive concept these yeah. days. Well, um, is, is Biden lying or can he just not remember what he was meant to say? Yeah, I maybe. Is I, that I the think same the, thing? I think the big one, Matt, just to finish my little point here, is the fact that the delegitimization of mainstream media, the huge distrust now for journalists, Americans' trust in the mass media has fallen about 15% over the last 20 years. It, it's hovering about 41%. In 1999, it was, it was 55 mm. So he's really undermined this normative function of journalism which is to hold power to account. You could see that when he walked out of that CBS interview. His refusal to go to the correspondence dinner in, in Washington, yeah. which is where that sort of traditional, you know, pause in hostilities, it's a sort of nod to each other. I'm the president, but I understand you have a job as journalist. His refusal to go to that, first time a president has not gone to that since Ronald Reagan didn't go in 1991. But to be fair, he was just recovering from being shot. Yeah. Um, so it's a sort of symbolic event, implicit sort of deal, uh, and Trump won't buy into that. So I think there's a real crossroads here. Does media follow these political logics and hold power to account? You'll get vilified, yes, but you might restore some of the standing of proper journalism, or do you keep following those news value logics? You make your money, but you also get vilified. So there's a really interesting sort of parting of the ways or a crossroads that we've reached here. Yeah, it's I think you're totally right. I think I think there is a sort of a there's a tipping point nearly that that we're that we're at right now. Mm. I mean, it was fascinating to see the the 60 minutes interview because he comes in all smiles, he does the little elbow handshake thing. And then the she you know they sit down and she says, "Look, are you ready for some uh, I think she said tough questions?" Yeah. yeah. And you can just see his posture tightens up. You know, <laughs> and pretty much that from that point, he's 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 getting ready to leave, you know, and it just it just shows you this guy's the president of America. And like if a journalist says, I'm going to ask you tough questions. He basically says no, you know, yeah. and it, it does. I, I think with the media, it's a, it's a sort of a short term gain versus medium term. Oh, sustainability absolutely. trade off that they're looking absolutely. at. You know? yeah. yeah, 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 I agree. And. I guess looking then in the more digital media space, up until Donald Trump's candidacy, Twitter was kind of a relatively marginal campaign uh, phenomenon. Um, but Donald Trump has kind of been this Twitter president, right? Often tweeting 15, 20 times an hour, often in all capital letters. <laughs> how, how, how do you think that he's changed that that particular medium, Elena? Um, it's really interesting because, as you just mentioned, I think when we think about Trump and his main method of communication, we always think of Twitter. Now, if we go back to 2008, when Trump was this mere celebrity, thanks to The Apprentice, mm -hmm. he had a lot of news value. The media liked him. And what he wanted to do, him and his team, was kind of think of new ways in which to generate revenue and promote the Donald. So here comes this online marketing director, a guy called Peter Costanzo. And he was the man responsible for starting the at real Donald Trump Twitter account. And mm. back in those days, it was very vanilla. It was just all about promoting events that Trump was involved in. But when Peter moved on and the account was handed back to Trump and his team, they wanted to rethink how the account should be run. 
So they didn't just want it to be a promotional tool. They wanted to show the real Donald Trump. So the outspoken, rude and crude guy that a lot of people have probably seen on Howard Stern's radio show. And they thought he was hilarious. So this is where we start to see, you know, these kind of little jokes that Trump puts out there. So I think one of them, I've never seen thin person drink Diet Coke. And <laughs> roasting celebrities like Cher for having bad plastic surgery, and also weirdly getting involved in these kind of celebrity breakups. I think it was Twilight's Robert Patterson. He was urging him not to take back his his co-star Kirsten Stewart. I think he said, "Yeah, she was it. She she dumped him like a dog or something." I think it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. I do remember. Yeah. But, but this is the thing. I'm, I'm reading this stuff because I mean, it's stuff that I looked at a while ago, and it is funny. No real harm done. And it did wonders for his following on social media. But I think over time, eventually his tweets became a lot more targeted and focused on US politics. So we had the questioning of President Obama's birthplace. So we see the start of the birther movement and then baseless claims about immigration policy and global warming. And the thing is, at that time, the mainstream media just didn't take these tweets seriously. It's like, oh, it's Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter. But this is where Trump started to find an audience. Those people that had no real need for facts, but those possibly as some of those people that went on to vote for him four years later. So if we fast forward then to June 2015, when he announced that he was running for office, this is where he started to use social media for great effect. And his tactic being is not to compete with him in policy, but to constantly put his opponents down or discredit them. So again, mm. comments about Ted Cruz as wacko liar and Jeb Bush is a total embarrassment to his family. <laughs> low, low energy <laughs> and, and, Jeb, right? Remember yeah, that? low energy. That's Little it. Marco. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, some of them were brilliant, but you know, this is where we also see, you know, the, the repetition of the crooked Hillary hashtag mm. and how that kind of feeds into people's minds and how that was really difficult for the Clinton campaign on Twitter because they didn't know how to respond to that. Should they dignify it or should they just leave it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for the likes of us three that study politics and media communication, we might see Trump's approach as a crisis in political communication. But for others, this is possibly a, a breath of fresh air that politics needed. So he's an outsider who's using his platform to call out other candidates for their lies and, and polished soundbites. So whether you love him or hate him, Trump did a great job of using Twitter as a political marketing tool in 2016 because it helped him capture the imagination mm. of a base of people who were just really tired of sterile career politicians. Now, there was talk once he won the election of him dialing back his use of Twitter <laughs> so yeah. he could appear more presidential. But as we all know, that went out the window when the low turnout at Trump's inauguration story broke. So this is where we start to see then the fake news defense, the alternative facts from Kellyanne Conway. And what this really did was took off as a, a shorthand attack on discrediting to true reports about Trump and on the, the idea of truth itself. Now, I could go on for a long time about this. There's so much to unpack about Trump's tweets. and But, but I think in terms of how we can quickly gauge this from Trump's use of Twitter is he has never ever adapted his use of it despite winning the presidency so he's essentially straight stayed true to his word of not being conventional politicians and for many I think this is the attraction of Trump he's remained an accessible figure who bypasses the mainstream media and Mm. speaks directly to the public on his own terms now we all know though that there's a flip side to this so 
there's plenty of new story listicles of Trump's most offensive tweets and how these tweets are actually contributing to partisanship in the US and the, the demise of deliberative political talk in the US. But there's also this issue of retweeting fake news stories. We've talked mm. already about QAnon and the postal vote fraud. And what this has done is it's led the way to increase fact-checking, as Richard has mentioned. But I don't think it really matters for those that support Trump because any criticisms from social media giants and the mainstream media just feeds into the agenda that Trump has pushed since the beginning of his presidential race, which is he's targeted by them because he's an outsider. And I think it's a perfect media strategy, really. But as Savannah Guthrie mentioned a few weeks ago when she she interviewed him, you're the president, not someone's crazy uncle, where you Mm -hmm. just retweet whatever. So we know that there are obvious consequences to Trump's visceral tweets and, and promotion of conspiracies in that they undermine the premise of deliberative political communication. And I think how that's going to play out, the consequences of this are going to play out as you know, the election day passes and the days and weeks after that. Now, I, I just, just picking up on what you said, Elena, one thing that strikes me as a sort of virtue of Donald Trump and, on Twitter is this thing called like authenticity, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's the core value that Twitter brings is that you're actually hearing like the person, mm-hmm. the person's thoughts and their, their, their ideas. No filter, is there? Yeah. yeah. There's no filter. You know, and I think whatever you think about his uh, wider effects on uh, political deliberation and um, respect for one another, I suppose he, he does have a very authentic Twitter presence. You got to give, you got to give him that. Oh, yeah. and, and again, you know, it's funny because like Obama really in a lot of ways kicked the whole thing off, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it was Obama who first started using Facebook and then later Twitter and, and, and platforms like YouTube in, in, in a kind of what I call like a polished authentic, you know, yeah, like it, it came across as authentic, but there was never a foot out of place. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Trump represented a kind of a con- continuity there. And it was something that, that Hillary Clinton was never able to do, the, you know, in, really never achieved any authenticity in any no. movie appearances that I saw, whatever her virtues as a, as a candidate. And so, you know, I, I don't know is that unnecessarily a bad a bad thing like i guess i guess it comes back to do you like what the person is authentically thinking or or saying mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. anyway um so listen we'd better um kind of wrap it wrap it up otherwise we'd be talking until the, the votes start being counted uh just to say we will be uh having a, a retrospective next week so by the time the next podcast drops we'll know the result or we might we might know that the result is being contested it's all kind of up in the air at the moment mm. Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll be having a look at what happened uh, on the 3rd of November either way. And i just like to close by saying, yeah, thanks to our uh, sponsors. So the Cherish Digital Economy Centre at Swansea University. And yeah, I'll, I'll see you all on the other side of Election Day. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.